uh, Isaac, uh, you think you'd survive the uh, apocalypse? I think about this all the time, and I think it's uh, I think it's relative. I think I'll, I'm in like the top like percentile of the survivors. Really? Well, uh, okay. Well, we got di- we have different apocalypse, right? We have nuclear apocalypse, zombie apocalypse, um, you know, uh, you know, EMP apocalypse. Let's just go with no internet for everybody across the world apocalypse. That doesn't sound like an apocalypse at all. <laughs> it doesn't? No. We couldn't yeah. do our podcast then. Oh, yeah. The world would definitely end. They'd miss us so much. Exactly. Um, wh- one thing I, I would do when I would, you know, be swiping through Tinder is not like left, right. Oh, I, I would want to have sex with this person. But like, who's going to survive the apocalypse? It To me, it's like a good uh, survey of just how many people under even like the the most like benign of apocalypses just aren't going to cut it. I'm just like, damn, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Maybe you'll make that. No, probably not. What about you? Do you think, do you think you're equipped for surviving the apocalypse? Um, I'm that guy who, who will just figure it out. You know, I'll find someone who can show me how to boil water um i'll um you know hopefully libraries will still be around i'm sure there's those books worst ca- those worst case scenario books you know those books are very very important oh, I read um, those, yeah yeah that's, I read that's, that's very pre-internet those books yes they're they, I mean, they uh, wouldn't make sense today like i don't think anybody would buy no it's just a, it's just a giant infographic in book <laughs> it's really just a, a big infographic but what's what's your skill though i mean like what do you think you would have to offer either like yourself if you're surviving alone or if you're you're in some sort of you know gang of of uh apocalyptic survivalists well as a boy um i was my mom had a cookie jar right and i remember one day she went to the cookie jar and all the cookies were gone this is in the course of a month right and the reason why over the course of the month I was able to take the cookies because I was very sneaky. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think sneakiness is a skill, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, yeah. Sneaking past mutants, sneaking past bears, um, you know, sneaking people's jerky from the from the opposing clan, stealing sure, their jerky. Sure, sure. Their, hu- their yeah. human jerky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the pale the pale <laughs> i think i think i think sneaky would be a really good name for you, a, a good stage name for you actually chris sanders is just not memorable but if you're if you're just if your name was just sneaky i think that'd be pretty good you're um, right I would, I would do black room i'd only do black room <laughs> all right sneaky uh what's on the show today all right today we uh we have steven clater of north florida survival school located in ocala and we're actually going to talk to him about the apocalypse and how to survive it. And, uh, and in Florida, how to survive the apocalypse in Florida. Yeah, specifically Florida. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. think he knows how to survive the apocalypse in uh, in, in the UAE or China. <laughs> or, <laughs> I mean, they're already experiencing their own apocalypses right now. So, aren't we all? Cheeseburger and. Uh, hi everyone. Uh, I'm Chris Sanders, my co-host Isaac Eager, and hello, we're hello. with Stephen Cater. 
and uh, Clater. Clater. Excuse me. Excuse me. Great way to start. Yes. Excuse me. My <laughs> dyla- dyslexia is destroying our yeah, careers yeah. as we speak. Um, and this is the Cheeseburger and Babylon podcast. And um, in this podcast, we pretty much we're trying to answer the question of what makes Florida Florida, and we find that answer by interviewing a variety of guests from all walks of life in Florida. And I was um, doing some research and I found you and I was very, very fascinated with the work that you do uh, with the North Florida survival school. And I'm curious, how did you get your start in survival? Well, I've been in the restaurant industry most of my life and I've always been interested in the wilderness and the outdoors. And I wanted to get out of the restaurant industry so I could spend more time in the outdoors. And I said, well, I'm just going to open up my own school doing what I love which is, you know, practicing survival and doing camping and stuff like that. And that's where we opened North Florida Survival School. Uh, it started off at North Florida Survival School, then it went to North Florida Survival and Adventure because I'd say we do probably almost as much uh, guided adventure as we do uh, education and, and survival training. Now, guided adventure, that means there's like people are coloring inside the lines. Is there a point where you just, all right, guys, we're in the graduate level. We're just going to like do a little mini civilian seer school. No, not quite that. So everyone that comes out to our courses understands that, that basically we're going into the wilderness and, and everything is unknown. There's no guarantees out there. So um, they come out there with a with a mindset that, you know, it could be dangerous. Um, there are variables that they can't predict. And even say, say they just do the weekend course, um, they come out there knowing that, you know, anything could happen. And the first thing we teach them is situational awareness and to pay attention to what's going on around you. Um, but most of the things that we do are primitive. And even on the guided adventures, you know, we do it to their comfort level. But uh, say they do the four-day river adventure, it's four days down the river with 10 pounds of gear, and they're sleeping on the riverbanks and catching their own food. And it's, you know, it's going to be difficult. So is it like a seer school? No, it's not like a boot camp. We're not yelling at people and, and, you know, making them jump through hoops and over obstacles and stuff like that. It's more fun adventure with some great skill set training, but done in an environment that's going to be conducive to learning. So if we were to go out there and exhaust them like by running a boot camp, like a SEER school, then they're not going to be able to retain as much information as they would in a, in a positive environment. Does that make sense? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. How, how did you get into it? What made you want to learn to survive in the wilderness? I just like being independent and self-reliant, and I want to give more people that ability to be independent and self-reliant, to mm-hmm. not have to depend on or lean on anyone else to be able to get by. And that's you know for, for my neighbors, for my friends, my family, and, and strangers alike. I just want to give them the ability to be able to take care of themselves and their family without having to depend on anyone else. Survive alone together. Yeah, kind of. That's a good way to describe it. Now, what's I'm curious, uh, what sort of students uh, do you get? Like, what are the personality types or the do you get like, <laughs> you know, beginners or people who are weekend warriors or people who maybe had a very insulated life and they want some risk? Yes. Um Simply, we, we get a melting pot of people. We get a variety. Everything from people just wanting to spend time with their family or, you know, father-son uh, uh, having some time together trip to the tinfoil hat that don't want the aliens to read their <laughs> minds kind of people. Right. Uh, and some of them are just looking for a fun and, and challenging adventure to do. Uh, but we've had people from, from ages 8 to um, 75, I think is the oldest that I've had out there, and um, of all walks of life and and all different medical conditions and I mean you you name it and they've probably been out there as long as they were they were able and capable of doing it. Really? You ever get like a guy who's like trying to tell you how to do it? Like I was a POW in Korea. That's not how you do it. Like 
there's always that guy uh, or, or girl uh, somewhere. You know, they, they pop in and you just step back and, and let them, you know, thump their chest a little bit. And then and then when you find the opportunity to humble them, you you do so very uh, diplomatically. Yeah, when they're looking and for water, you, and you're like, no. Now, yeah. Where, where are you from? Were you born and raised in Florida? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've lived here in Ocala most all my life, man. I've spent a few years in Georgia with my dad, but I, I lived here in Ocala most all my life. Yeah, survival in Florida... Um, what what makes survival in Florida different than survival elsewhere? Probably the the biggest challenge in Florida is the heat and the humidity uh, that we have almost you know year round, except for in the few months that we have winter. We don't have four seasons like other states. We have two seasons. We have summer and winter, and that's it. There's no fall and no spring really, as far as temperature wise and and everything else changing. So we have a few months of dry cool, and then the rest of them are pretty much uh, heat and humidity, and and that's the challenge that we face versus a lot of other places um with the humidity over 70 percent a lot of the times the heat just i mean sorry this the sweat just never evaporates off your skin so you just end up soaking wet almost all the time and just ridiculously hot so mm-hmm. without the ability to mitigate that it's you know it's a, it's a little more dangerous as far as um how to how to thermoregulate keep your body's core temperature optimal and stay alive there are other places that are kind of like Florida if you go to the like rainforest and places like that where you're constantly hot and, and wet but that's one of the challenges that Florida offers you is the the heat and humidity they're constant along with the biting insects during the time of the year that they're, oh, that they're there the time of the year it's it's years. it's all year round now I remember mm-hmm. when I, I I'm born in Florida mm-hmm. and I remember there used to be like uh, at least a couple months reprieve from mosquitoes but they're they're here year round now well, up here in, in where I'm at in North Central Florida, uh, during the winter we don't we don't really deal with them that much during the the maybe what December, January, February. Uh, it's it's way less than any other time of the year. Of course, you know once you once you get into the warmer months, they definitely come out in droves. So the the ticks, chiggers, and mosquitoes definitely make it aggravating in the wilderness. Now mosquitoes you'll encounter everywhere. Ticks you'll encounter mostly in the wilderness, and chiggers the same thing. But uh, those are those are pretty annoying little critters. That's that's what I kind of I, when I when I try to imagine the way um, that uh, like the the native peoples used to live, you know, for thousands of years here, I always wondered. It's like how do they deal with the mosquitoes? If I get one mosquito in my room at night, I'm not sleeping. So it'll drive you nuts, right? Just the buzzing. Just the buzzing alone. So how how do you survive out in the wilderness <laughs> when? You have bloodthirsty mosquitoes at you. You know, it's not. All night. It's not the buzzing that that drives me nuts. It's when they stop buzzing and you don't know where they landed. So then you just start kind of swatting everywhere, and you're not right. sure where they're at. So, um, so what the what the natives did years ago, and and what what people did in the past is they would fog out areas by using something like wax myrtle or um, beauty berry leaves, different leaves that have chemicals in them that you know you soak them in water, put them on the fire, and then the vapors that it gives off. It mixes with the, the chemicals that are in the leaves, the oils in the leaves, mix in with the water vapors in the air. And it kind of fogs out an area and helps keep some of that stuff away. Huh. Does it completely get rid of it? Absolutely not. But does it help mitigate it a little bit? Sure. And they were also acclimated to it. You know, they'd lived that lifestyle for years and years and years. How much of, I understand you got some training in Arizona uh, at the Aboriginal Survival School out there. Um, and then obviously you have your school now. How much of what you learned in Arizona is applied in the school now, and how much of those original Florida Aboriginal techniques are can be are practical today? Um, so, what I learned at at Cody Lundin School, the Aboriginal Living Skills School, 
um, was amazing. Number one, he's an excellent instructor. He's very down to earth and logical. And I highly recommend his course to anyone that's, that's interested in survival and can afford to go out there and take it. Uh, but I use everything that I learned in that course pretty much in my course. Um, I, it's just all wonderful information. The way that it was that it was uh, taught and, and instructed to us was a way that you can easily retain it and pass it on to other people. And that's that's of course what Cody encourages, and that's what we do in our class too. We we teach, but then we encourage people to go out and teach the same skills to other people. Now the skills that we're learning in Arizona versus the skills that are learned here are you know a lot of them are going to be the same skills. What's going to differ is some of the flora and fauna, the plant life, the, the different types of wood that you would use for fire by friction and things like that. But the skills are pretty much going to be the same no matter where you go. It's just going to be different uh, animals, different plants, and different woods that you're going to use for the different different tasks that you need to accomplish. Do you think about the end of the world a lot? I'm sorry, the end of the world? Yeah, do you think about it? <laughs> I don't really think about it. I, I just I, I prepare for the things that are within my control to, to do something about. Um, I try to teach people to... You know, here in Florida, we have hurricanes every year, uh, almost every year, mm-hmm. if not tropical storms. And then we deal with power outages and, and things like that. So I tell people, if you're prepared for a couple of months of hurricane season with no power and stuff like that, then you're prepared for multiple things across the board, whether it be a pandemic, which we recently all experienced, or, you know, economic collapse, some people fear, or government collapse, or, you know, everybody has their different things that they're concerned about. Some people worry about nuclear. I don't really worry about any of it. It's, it's pointless to worry about it. and mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so I just, you know, I prepare for what I can control in, in my, in my realm and make sure I have, you know, what I need for my family to get by and, uh, and go from there. So I don't, I don't think about the end of the world much, but I just try to prepare myself the best I can for, for what I can do. I mean, that's reasonable because the people quite often, I'll paint a broad brush here, who are afraid of economic collapse, nuclear war, they're panicking, right? And isn't the first step of survival is just don't panic. Just be aware of what you can control. We call it PMA, positive mental attitude. And that is literally the number one priority in any survival situation is to maintain a positive mental attitude. Because if you get in a crappy situation, you say, oh, my God, this sucks. I'm going to die. You're probably going to die. But if you get in a crappy situation, say, oh, my God, this sucks. But, you know, I have this, this and this to live for. Then you have a better opportunity of of getting through it. So you're right. You know, people people will panic. Uh, Not all, but a lot of people will panic, especially when there's a lot of unknowns, if this is all new to them and they're just realizing that there's something going on and you know they just start learning about different things going on in the world and they start getting a little more concerned, then they start to panic because they don't know what to do. They've never experienced it. They don't know anything about prepping. They've always thought, you know, people that, that prep and, and, and are preppers are just crazy people that buy too much stuff and hoard things. And, you know, it's, it's, that's not the that's not the case. We just have enough stuff on hand to to get us through a little tough time and we're normal people that work normal jobs and have normal families and normal lives. And we go to the theme parks and do stuff with our family. You know, we're so, just, we're just normal people, man. So is, uh, the term doomsday prepper pejorative in your mind? So doomsday prepper, I think might be a little more severe than just a, a basic prepper. Um, doomsday kind of, kind of does encompass more of an Armageddon kind of thing. Right. And, and I don't I don't know if we'll ever see that in our time. I'm a man of faith and, and I believe in God. Uh, I don't know if if there's going to be an end of the world uh, before before the second coming, as we as we Christians say, uh, or if there's going to be something else that's like almost apocalyptic, but not quite. You know, there's there's no way to know. But to dwell on it and just, you know, let it completely take over your mind and, and all the things that you think about. Um, I think that's just not you're not going to live. 
you know, you're, you're preparing to, to live, but you're not living your life while you're preparing to live in that situation. Does that make sense to you guys? You know what I'm saying? Totally understand. Totally understand. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think about the end of the world a lot. Um, uh, especially in Florida, I, uh, I write about it. Uh, I, I think that we are going to, I think Florida is kind of like practice for the end of the world. And so I think learning to survive in Florida obviously only applies to Florida itself. But I do think that um, the mentality of like preparing for uncertainty, as you put it, is there's a practical knowledge to it for sure. And I, I've attended uh, some primitive technology gatherings um, in North Carolina uh, to learn those kinds of skills, and I was kind of like obsessing over it. I just think I think it's interesting that uh, you're preparing for. I, I think we have a misconception of like the end of the world, right? I think that a lot of people fantasize about um, like a meteor hitting the Earth and it all just like going away at once. But that's not how I think the world ends. Or I think you you have like archipelagos of apocalypses. You know, you have areas where the world is ending, but in other places where it's okay. And so when I think of like what the end of the world means, it, it's like a, it's like a shrinking of habitable earth via like environment or politics. Well, I mean, that's like a, that's our Western perspective, right? Parts of Latin America have been ending for a while. Well, that's, of, that's what I'm saying yeah. is that there are areas right now where, you know, it is becoming uninhabitable. Um, and so, I guess when you're thinking about surviving in Florida, you mentioned like a hurricane and being out for a couple of months. Um, do you not think about surviving beyond that? Like in, in, indefinitely Absolutely. you do? Absolutely. But I encourage people to start somewhere mm -hmm. and, and that somewhere for us is usually hurricane preparedness because it's very logical. People can understand it. They can relate to it and they understand that it's much more logical you have to understand that everyone has a different Armageddon that they fear. Not everyone, but there are several different Armageddons that different people fear. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's an Armageddon or just a, a bad situation that they're that they're concerned about. So, you know, yours makes sense. Where to other people it wouldn't make sense, and other people worry more about you know a medical pandemic. Like they recently experienced the whole COVID thing and saw how things kind of shut down, and and were very concerned about people dying and stuff like that. And some of us were like, oh, okay, it's just, it's a virus, it's new, but I'm not going to panic and freak out about it. Right. Um, you know, toilet paper disappeared on the shelves. And, and every time I go to Sam's Club, I usually get two family packs of toilet paper. I go put one of them in the house to use, and then I'll take one of them and store it because it's non-perishable. It's going to stay good for a while. And I've had cases of toilet paper stored away for years and years, not because I went and bought 20 cases of it when, when things went crazy and it started disappearing off the shelf. But because I've always had an excess of it, right. and then when friends of mine needed it, they they knew that I had excess. They'd call me and they say, "Hey, man, I can't even get some dang toilet paper at the store. Can I get some toilet paper from you?" Oh, yeah, and I was yeah. literally meeting people in parking lots and taking them toilet paper so they could, <laughs> you know, wipe their butt. Yeah. But people, you know, people That's... worry and panic and freak out about the craziest things. Yeah, and then yeah. Wiping your ass with uh, paper. First of all, I think toilet paper is really barbaric, and. <laughs> Uh, there are much better ways of cleaning your ass out. It's a washcloth, There's man. Right? So many ways. I mean, so many ways. most of the world doesn't use toilet paper, period, and they're fine. I don't so. wipe my butt till I'm showering. <laughs> yeah, I go, yeah. I can smell it. Shower every day. Is yeah. Um, so, no, it, it is It is funny the things that people do concern themselves with uh, about, like, what happens when 
the very precarious systems we have set up inevitably shut down. Um, and we're see yeah, we're seeing that today with like supply chain issues, just how Ugh. how dependent we are on this global like system. That's and, a nightmare. Yeah, and so I I, I do think that like self sufficiency is um, of great value. Um, but you, I, I'm just trying to like think about how you imagine the world. If you're if you're not thinking about like the end of the world, either I mean you, you consider it metaphysically as a Christian, um, but like more practically in Florida, more centralized in Florida, it's like it's a hurricane. Um, is there? Well, I mean, I don't I don't consider a hurricane the end of the world. You know, right. I don't I don't I rarely even evacuate when we have the the worst coming through our, our zone in our area, we usually kind of just shelter in place. Yeah. Um, because by the time it gets inland to us, it's, it's usually lost a lot of esteem. Might, there may be some tornado spinoffs, but I don't even look at that like the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's the, the, the thing. So a lot of people, they, they see the school and they say, you know, they're, they're worried about Armageddon or they're worried about doomsday or they're worried about, you know, the, the pandemic or the, the economic or government collapse. And they say, I want to learn how to live in the woods. So if something happens, I can take my family and we can go survive in the woods until everything gets better or calms down or indefinitely. Mm-hmm. And what they don't realize is Florida is not the place to just run off and go live in the woods. If yeah. you haven't done it your whole life, it is not practical to try to run off into the woods with your family with the backpacks full of gear and think that you're going to live off the land because you're not. You're going to be miserable. You're, you're likely going to get dehydrated. You're going to get sick. You're going to get all kinds of things can happen to you in the woods. It's not the animals and things like that that you have to worry about so much as just the, the fact that you're not acclimated to that lifestyle and you can't just throw yourself into it mm-hmm. and survive. It's not it's not likely and it's it's certainly not reasonable or logical for any normal person <clears throat> that's been in the air conditioner their whole life eating out of the pantry and going to the grocery store. Right. So um you gotta you gotta do something different. So what we do is, you know, we of course we teach primitive wilderness survival, but we do prepping on a budget for beginning preppers too. We show them what to, what to do, what to buy, what not to buy, because good Lord knows there's tons of scammy things on the Internet of, of completely ready-made kits that are garbage and you know different things. So we just teach people a logical approach to getting ready for whatever it is that they're concerned about. And if it's hurricanes, we teach them evacuation routes, local shelters. We set up a supply thing in their home, generators, stabilized fuel, you know, stuff like that, medical kits, lighting stations, et cetera. And then if they're worried about other things, then we get them set up in that way. You know, we can do uh, security shutters for hurricanes or we can do security shutters for intruders. And what I think of when I think of, you know, the end of the world or Armageddon or, you know, any bad situation, it's not the, the initial cause of it that I'm concerned about. Because the initial cause of whatever it is, whether like you've mentioned a meteorite or it's nuclear or whatever it could possibly be, you're either going to survive that or you're not. There's no... Maybe, you know, if the, if the meteor hits close to where you're at, you're toast. Unless you got a, a crazy deep down underground bunker or something. How many people can afford that? That's right. not logical. And, and even, so you're either going to survive that initial thing or you're not. Right. What I concern me... myself with after that is the people. Well, it's the people that you have to worry about. No, indeed. Like uh, people's incompetence, you know, people just uh, being afraid, right? Isn't fear the biggest uh, obstacle to any form of uh, success in any situation? But I'm curious for you, Stephen, what's the longest sustained uh, survival you've done in the wilderness? Two weeks. And what was that like? It was very relaxing and, um, I don't know, it was just, it was like a little vacation away from 
people. <laughs> oh, so solo. You were you, you weren't with a group or anything. You were solo. No, 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 solo. And uh, it was just it was very nice. Um, I had a dual sport at the time, and I rode that way out in the wilderness, and it was just very you know it was it was it was mildly challenging, but um, more than anything, it was just relaxing and and knowing that I didn't have to get up at any certain time or do anything or deal with anybody. Uh, that was very. Uh, I don't know. It was it was an experience. It's um, yeah. I when I think about surviving a, a cataclysmic event, like you're saying, if you have like some really expensive bunker that can survive like a nuclear blast or even like a, a, a let's let's be honest, like a small meteorite, even like a medium sized meteorite is just gonna yeah. Size of Rhode Island, not Texas. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember reading this uh, this New Yorker article about these uh, billionaire doomsday preppers out in like Kansas, like the silos that they've and it's like luxurious what they've set up for themselves. And I found, yeah, I've seen some of the pictures of that stuff, man. Yeah, it's I mean it's hilarious, right? Like for for me the the question is always like if even if hypothetically I could survive some sort of cataclysmic event, would I even want to? Like <laughs> if if the world Lord the, take me now. Kind of, yeah. Like <laughs> If the world is, is scorched earth and society has crumbled and people are, you know, just looking out for themselves, it's like, do you want to do that? Most people don't want to clock into their nine to five. You know how much work you have to do to survive, survive? Yeah. Like, oh, God, I got to wake up at 5 a.m. to, you know, to be <laughs> to a, a farmer. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of people feel that way, um, and and then a lot of us are survivors. You know, we we figure whatever it is, we'll figure it out and we'll get through it. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's my mindset. I don't sure. care what it is or what's going on. I'm, you know, I've, I've got a family, and if my family's here, I'm going to figure out what I need to do to provide for them and take well, care I'm of them. Dead. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm a fighter. I I like to fight. Like uh, I, I use this basketball metaphor all the time that even if I'm on the worst possible team, I'm still going to play as hard as I possibly can, even if I'm guaranteed to lose. I'm yeah, you're still, going for the W regardless. Yeah, I'm going to try as hard as I can. What's the point of playing otherwise? Right. Um, but there are certain like fantasies. I, I think that a lot of like the doomsday prepper types, I don't think that they're panicked, like Chris said. I think that they're actually gleeful. I think that I think that <laughs> so much people of, definitely want natural selection to happen. And, yeah, and, and there, there, there is this apocalyptic fantasy of, of a renewal, right? Of starting everything over again because things are so fucked up right now. And so I think that a lot of these people are, are praying for some kind of event. They, they, they're constantly fantasizing about these end of world scenarios. Um, and I think they're gleeful about it because they're better prepared for it than your average citizen is. Right. Well, I mean, or so they think, you know, and they can mm-hmm. prepare themselves as much as they want. But even, even they'll quickly learn that, you know, if society were to collapse and there was something going on, humans are social beings. Right. We, we need a social construct. We need people to talk to and interact with, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, you know, if that were to happen, you know, it would, it would be devastating to the world and they might lose some family and some people might not care about the family they lose and stuff. I would not like to see an apocalyptic event to occur. You know, mm-hmm. I'm the, I'm the kind of person that understands that like people that carry a concealed firearm, they hope they never have to shoot somebody. Most of them. Most of them hope they never have to shoot someone in their, in their life. They never want to take a life, but they understand that should the need arise, they would sacrifice that, you know, that being on their conscience to protect themselves or someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing for the people that, that want an apocalyptic event to happen. You know, those those are the few people like the ones that do carry a concealed firearm that hope to have a chance to use it one day. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ever shoot somebody. 
But I understand that, you know, should the needs arise, I'm not going to let someone hurt my family or an innocent bystander. Right. But and in, it's the same thing. In, in, in every gun, like whenever, I've, uh, whenever I hold a gun, they're in it is like the fantasy of using it, right? Because you, you have to kind of like project yourself forward in time in a way and how you would use the weapon. I mean, you, you, you train for it, right? Right. Well, training is where you use it. You know, right. training is where you use it. But would I ever fantasize about shooting someone? Heck no, man. I don't ever want to shoot anyone. No. I never want to shoot. I never want, I ne- I've never fantasized about putting myself in a situation where I would be able to shoot a bad guy and be a hero. I don't want it to happen because more than likely someone's going to get hurt or harmed or killed mm-hmm. in that situation before I'm able to do something. And it's just, you know, it's not a situation you want to hope for. But that brings me back to the people where I say in an apocalyptic situation, it's the people you have to concern yourself with. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been to a Black Friday? Yes. Okay. So you've seen on the news where people literally stab each other and shoot each other over the last TV on the shelf during Black Friday. Right. Yeah. Grandma Imagine what it's going to be like when when it's the last can of food to feed your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a totally different thing. No, you're right. The, there is a sort of like, uh, especially with popular media, this fantasy, this Walking Dead like fantasy that everyone's going to be cordial and and uh, they'll survive and they'll figure it out. But it will. I mean, I my my mother's Cambodian, so she lived through the Cambodian genocide. So like, she tells me stories about like how her neighbor turned on her and her family and tried to kill them for rice you know what i mean yeah like crazy shit like that and it's hard for and us I mean, to that's, imagine that's that. what it would be that's yeah. the thing that you need to prepare yourself for and the, and the the sad reality of it is it's not the things you need to worry about because you can figure out how to grow something and you can figure out how to how to harvest an animal if you, if you kill one how to skin it and how to get the meat out <laughs> even if you don't do a good job on the first one you'll figure it out eventually yeah i ate a squirrel but what you'll never be able to figure out is the people and what they're gonna do they're just very unpredictable yeah, and so I wonder sometimes if one of the greatest uh, survival skills is being charming and like <laughs> being, being a politician. All, yeah, all being politically savvy. Yeah, Ted, yeah. 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 Ted Cruz. All the diplomacy and... in the world is not going to save you from, from a bad guy. Well, Doesn't matter how charming you are. Ron DeSantis will make it. I mean, I, I, I would, I mean, in my, in my uh, end of world fantasies, uh, all politicians are murdered and we eat them. Um, <laughs> but uh, someone else will end up filling that tense. void as like, as, as, so, as, as social vacuums. As, as social vacuums, but yeah, as, as people start to collect again and begin to organize themselves, like, once you put like four people in a room, like rules form, you know, like it's, it's your own mini government in a way. Like sure. it's, it's impossible to avoid these kinds of social contracts that, um, that, that create themselves in, in these situations. Uh, new, new politicians will come, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, it'll happen. It'll happen. Politics will, will live on. Well, I mean, so look at it this way. When we were first settling into America from, from, from England, um, think about the way things were then. There were people that were just trying to make their way and stake out their land and, and, and make their claim in the world. And then there were the people that were taking advantage of the fact that they were out there away from everyone else and they were murdering people and taking what they had and and moving forward. And it's going to be the same thing. You know, there's going to be a lot of people spread out over areas. They're not going to know who they can trust. The communications aren't going to be what they are now. So it'll be back to, you know, not being able to get the word out to other people as fast as you used to. You know, it's going to be a different world if it ever happens right. and it's going to be a learning experience for everyone. You can prepare until the cows come home, but you're not going to know what's going to happen and, and you're, you're not going to be able to prepare for everything. So again, I, I go back to focus on the things that are within your control mm-hmm. 
and and prepare for that. You know, learn some firearms training, learn a little bit about agriculture and horticulture, learn a little bit about um, canning your food or uh, engineering or how to fix machinery, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. Learn some basic skills that you know that you can use and, and put to use. I'll just can use uh, you YouTube. By. I'll just look up I'm on YouTube. When yeah, right. right. <laughs> that <laughs> is like my, happens, my right? teacher. Yeah. You know who I think? Well, so, who, I feel like the people with photographic memories, those are the people, because there'll still be books, right? So I imagine that person will be like a very valuable person in a camp, in a in a in a simulation where Isaac and I and like four other people are in a doomsday situation. If we have a friend with a photographic memory, they're our human computer. We have to keep them. How do we how do we boil water? All right, cool. How do we make? Uh, how, how do we boil water? That's natural selection happening right there. If they can't boil water already, they're done. Greg, Chris, I have to remind Chris how to do it every time. I guess. Yeah. Uh, um, have you ever seen that show um, Alone? Love it, love it. Man. Yeah, it's a little it's, more realistic than a lot of the other things. Oh, for sure. I mean, I I was really taken with that show, um, but what I came away with from watching that show was here you have all these people who are, you know, professional survivalists. Like, they have dedicated their lives to learning how to survive in the wilderness. They're plopped out in the middle of, like, nowhere Alaska or Canada. And I love the ones that have all the confidence and then, like, tragedy. Tap out almost immediately. Yeah, and and, and not because they they aren't good at what they do. But because so much of the world, when you're living by yourself especially, is luck. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a combination of skill and luck. But you saw like just, just a, a, a wrong step into a hole and there goes your knee. And yeah. You're not going to survive. Yeah. And so well, a mechanical injury can take you down quickly. A simple mechanical injury like that can definitely yeah. take you fast. But a lot of it is chance, you know. So we, we tell people when we're teaching about trapping. One person needs to set 10 to 20 traps to have a, a success rate to have enough food to eat. You know, if one person goes out there and sets three traps, your odds of having food are pretty slim to none. Mm-hmm. So chance has a big part of it, you know? Yeah. And so what I, I guess for me, the show kind of dispelled this um, libertarian uh belief in the world, right? That you are enough to do it, right? That you can do things by yourself. Because you can't, and and surviving just a hundred days, I mean that that's like really harsh conditions they were in. Nobody's gonna want to settle in like a remote island in Alaska or whatever. Um, no. But what it, it showed to me was just like, no matter how hard you pull those bootstraps, like someone else has to be there with you. Like you, right. Like so, what it comes down to is it, is it possible for one person to survive alone in harsh conditions like that? It is possible, but is it is it plausible or logical? No, it's right. it's better to have people with you to back you up, help you. I mean, not only are you helping each other physically and with your task and the things you need to do, but you're lifting each other up mentally. You know, you're you're there for each other. You can lean on each other. You have somebody that you can think about and talk to. Like I said, we're social beings. We need that that you know that society there to interact with, and having that makes a huge huge difference. I'm right. curious, have you? Ever do you have any skills with like falconry or like going out and like uh, surviving? I with wish. Like... Okay. <laughs> I wish I, w- I had a, a falcon or a hawk that I could train to, to go. I don't have the time to do that. I have a, a wife and a, a eight month old baby, and and we're gonna go for another one pretty soon. So okay. my odds of, of having time to go for a uh, for for falcon training are pretty slim to none. But I'm I'm good with a bow. I'm good with hunting. I'm I'm good with trapping and foraging. You know. I'm, 
I'm good with the skill set. And earlier you were saying, you know, you think it's the person with the photographic memory. I, I teach people to lean more towards skills. You know, that, that's something that can't be taken away from you or can't be lost, you know, unless you unless you just fail to practice them completely. So I don't I don't lean on stuff. I lean on skills is, uh, and is, I encourage is, other people to do the same. Is joke telling a skill that will help? Sure. Uh, sure. Chris, you, got, you have one thing that will keep it's you a, going. It's entertainment. Entertainment yeah, is yeah. a tradable commodity, man. People, people need entertainment. Give him they, some they rabbit. He told a joke. <laughs> Listen, when I get up, when I get up in the morning, I start scrolling through Facebook and I look for something funny to just give me a good laugh for the morning. That's my favorite thing is starting the morning off with a good laugh. Oh, you gotta follow. Some... You gotta follow me on Instagram, then, dude. Okay. Facebook is is for our, our our parents at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm that guy. I don't have an Instagram. My wife, <laughs> she's 12 years younger than me. She keeps encouraging me to get one and 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 do something, but. Um, but you get the point that I'm making, you know, right, so comedy right. lifts us up, man. It's definitely a, a tradable commodity. Um, and that's another thing that you can always invest into is tradable commodities. A lot of people think gold, which is just untradable. I mean, it's, it, it is tradable, but it's just such a high value. You know, mm-hmm. silver is the way to go if you're going to invest in something that's tradable. Um, ammunition is a way to go. Um, medication or alcohol uh, is going to be a tradable commodity. Heirloom seeds, things like that are tradable and skills are tradable. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know how to do something, it's not it's not just the skills that are going to be the people you want to be around, the ones with the skill sets like medical training is going to be huge. Um, but also people that have uh I just had a brain fart, man. You can train animals. Um, <laughs> you can definitely trade animals and if you have any agricultural skills in livestock. Oh, but the the problem solvers, the ingenuitive people, the ones that just figure things out, that have a natural ability and knack to to figure it out and make it work. Those are the best people that you want to be around. It's like my so Russian, seventy-five-year-old Russian chess grandmaster neighbor. He's gonna. <laughs> I don't know about that. I survived yeah. in Russia. I can do this. I can live in Florida. You've told me some of the things you've said. He doesn't sound that smart, but. Uh... So my my best friend Tony and I are are those kind of people. We we figure things out. So I've built my own furniture. I helped a friend lay some pavers the other day, and that's you know I've never built my own stuff before. I've never laid pavers. But I figure these things out, you know, and I can understand how it would work, why it would work, and what needs to be done. And my brain just works in that way. My friend Tony is the same way. Anything that you need to do, we can just kind of basically go at it and figure it out and do it as we go. And, and that's the thing that I think it's really important. Like once you learn a skill, you those are foundation skills, and you can over time build more skills quickly, more quick because you like you know these other skills, right? Yes. And and the downside is everybody lives in their little bubble. You know, they, they can go to the store, they get this, they get that. And I didn't have the easiest life growing up. It was, you know, fairly difficult. And I think that those difficulties caused me to um, be an ingenuitive person to figure out a way. You know, I didn't have the tools that were necessary to accomplish certain things. So I had to figure out how to use the tools I have to make things work. And and that's what made me be more inventive and more creative and, and be able to do things in a different way than, than other people. And I think that's just a huge skill set is being ingenuitive and being able to adapt. And what do you appreciate about this life right now, being that we, this comfortable sort of life that we have right now as people? So probably, probably the, the number one thing I appreciate is good food and air conditioning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those are, those are my two, two of my favorites. Um, my family are, we're, we're foodies. So we love being able to just go out and get food at the restaurant and, just enjoy something without having to cook at home and stuff. And and I love, you know, being down here that there's air conditioner. We're looking to move to Georgia in the next three to five years. 
uh, somewhere up in the mountains where it's, you know, we, we want all four seasons and we want to have some, some beautiful mountain views. So we'll keep a home down here and we'll probably get another one up in the mountains somewhere. Oh, very nice. If you, but, um, would it be easier to survive in the mountains of Georgia than in the swamps of Florida? You know, I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure. Um, because you know, each one's going to have its pros and cons, you know, down here, is it swampy and humid? Yes, but there is so many different diverse ecosystems and things that you can eat and forage, et cetera. We're up there during the winter. You're not going to have as much greenery and as much life as you're going to have down here. Right. Um, but, you know, during the, during the summer, it'll be a little more tolerable uh, in the higher climates and stuff. So, right. you know, each one's going to have its, its pros and cons. I haven't lived there yet, so I couldn't I couldn't tell you. Uh, firsthand but i could i suspect that you know each one's just going to have its own difficulties and and its own bonuses depending on what you're doing yeah it's it's a lot of people don't know this about florida but the the first known uh settlement uh or agricultural society almost uh it was it was here in florida it was here in the everglades uh, when people stopped uh being entirely nomadic and that was like 10,000 or so years ago um i didn't know that yeah, it's it's uh it's it's pretty it's pretty wild stuff. Um, and uh, it, I read it in the book The Swamp. Um, it was a it's a history of uh, the Everglades. Um, but I think and you wouldn't think that the Everglades would be a great place to settle nomadically, you know, because the, the, all the the gators and different things that are down there didn't you wouldn't think that'd be a great place to start like animal husbandry and things like that. Right. I mean, it it, it I think part of it was uh, and and what made Florida so unique um, at the time was it, yeah the the abundance of food here. I mean, oh yeah, there are just you, I, it, it used to be described that there were so many like sea turtles in the bays that you could walk across their backs. Like our our the land here was so rich with life uh, that the Calusas. One of my favorite stories about the conquistadors coming here uh, was that uh, when they first encountered the Calusas, who were the native peoples in the Gulf around Tampa. Um, all the Calusas were over like six feet tall because they just lived yeah. off of protein and shellfish. This, this great abundance that was there. Um, wouldn't that have been beautiful to see, man? I mean, it, 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 it breaks my heart when I read about the way things used to be. Um, and today you, I would never eat an oyster out of Sarasota Bay. It is just toxic shit. And so I, I think that what's changed a lot, uh, over just really the past couple hundred years is we have so poisoned the land that's making it so that you can just run out in the woods and survive and, you know, be away from society is just that much harder now because, you know, a combination of, yeah, like red tide and phosphates and just all the toxic shit we've put into the land that taking resources back out and all the, the biodiversity that we've we've lost, it it just makes it that much harder. I, I would agree with you. You know, there's no no telling what tributary feeds into what, and and politicians getting their pockets lined have made it to where people are allowed to do this and allowed to do that, and it's just completely devastated our ecosystem over the years. I'm curious: is there an environmentalist component to survivalists? Like a community? I, I think you'd have to ask individuals on that. I couldn't tell you as a whole. Um, I mean, we all care about the ecosystem. Uh, we want it to be uh, replenishable and we want it to grow and, and to flourish because without it, you know, we, we feel like every, you know, it's a circle of life. Everything, every ecosystem has to, has to have balance. 
And, you know, that you were talking about apocalypse into the world, you know, people not wanting to get up because everything's just burnt to ash. Here's the thing, man. Even even when everything's burnt up, nature will find a way and it will come back. And and Mm -hmm. Netflix recently had a documentary on, you know, when when it when it comes back or something about basically, you know, after Armageddon, how the earth would regrow. But it's it's you don't have to worry about nature. It will find a way and it will flourish. Yeah. We saw that without the pandemic. People. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the, the way I would kind of turn environment or I would remarket environmentalism is that this environment that we live in right now is designed specifically for us. You know, the fantasies of colonizing space are just that fantasies. We will, we will never ever live in space with our bodies. Until we can upload our brains onto computers, which I think is impossible, uh, we're not going to live on Mars because our bodies just, it's not built for us. And the environment, the way it exists today, is specifically designed for our comfort. And so to save the environment then would mean to save our own comfort. Because you're right, like nature is indifferent. Like life will, I I don't think that even in in a nuclear holocaust that all life will be eradicated. And then, you know, millions of years later, something new will form. Um, but selfishly, self-interestedly, you know, we should do our best to preserve and uh, basically rewild the world as much as possible. Because otherwise, it ain't going to be fun for us to live in it. That would be great, and it's ideal, but it's not It's not likely going to happen. What's more likely going to happen is that populations will continue to grow, and preservations will continue to be compromised by by political um people politicians and and when i say compromise i mean they'll they'll let little corners of of protected areas be shaved off for for growth of a city or um an industrial park or uh, a new subdivision development as populations grow in the the name of progress and that's what's happened Mm -hmm. for for the last century you know Mm -hmm. um and it'll continue to happen so yeah, nowhere, nowhere is it worse than Florida, I think, right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, you've got the villages, which is completely taken over um, Lake Sumter and Marion County, um, and it's just spreading down. It's already down past Okahomka and getting towards Orlando now. But all of that, that used to be what, like natural farmland, and it was a great place for water to filter down through and go down into the aquifer and everything. Now it's going to be full of fertilizers and everything else mm-hmm. before it gets down in there. I mean, it's just everything's changing. Everything's growing, and and it's not going to grow in a way that's friendly and great for our environment. And there's right. it's not enough people that are fussing about it to to make a difference, and not enough people that are in the right places to make a difference uh, as as it stands right now. So, again, you know, this it's the things that are within our control. That's what you should focus on. You know, mm-hmm. don't focus on every little thing. And I'm not saying you know, don't think that you can't make a difference. You know, when it comes time and you have the opportunity to vote on something, vote on something. When you have the opportunity to speak about something, speak about it. Educate people. Do what you can as far as that goes. But focus on the things that you can do something about uh, to make sure that you and your family and everyone are going to be okay and safe. That's that's what I always recommend. I, I think, you know, survival school in some ways maybe, you know, could remarket itself as a way to get people just in touch with nature again. Quite often we, we live in cities. We're comfortable with everything. Florida has being bought and sold by by the month to developers and people are losing their relationship with nature their only relationship with nature is the beach and that's not even really what the beach originally was or is right i would agree with you i would say definitely um people that come out and take the classes definitely get a new 
uh, view on nature and, and a new respect for it and a new love for it or a rekindled love uh, for the wilderness. And one of the things we always do is we I give students extra credit to pack out trash and they'll all they're all instructed to bring two two uh, 55 gallon drum liners with them. And while we're out there, we pick up as much trash as we possibly can and we pack it out of the forest. And I mean, that's just that's just one little difference that we can make. And nobody ever fusses about it. Nobody ever fusses about, oh, man, I've got all my gear to bring back, plus the things that I made while I was out here, and now i got to haul back this trash, too. Everyone is literally taking the time, looking around, and trying to pick up every bit of trash they can when they leave. Mm. And I think that, that speaks volumes for you know, their, their love and appreciation for the wilderness. So when they come out and do these courses, I agree that you know, they're not just learning survival. They're rekindling or, or, or starting a relationship with nature that is – you know, that is ultimately going to help, but unfortunately not enough people come and take the courses that is making enough of a difference. So hopefully more people will, will take courses and we can get more people into the wilderness and get them to respect it and appreciate it. Well, Isaac and I, we need to come out there. Are you, are you going to be going to Georgia? Are you actually, are you still going to have the school in Florida? Absolutely. Yep. We're going to be doing dual, dual, uh, locations. So we'll eventually find a place up in, in Georgia. We can do it as well. And we'll continue courses in Florida. That's fantastic. Georgia's very, very lucky to have you. Isaac, anything else? No, uh, I, I think it's a bit of fun conversation, and I'm, I'm actually interested in taking your course at some point. So um, Awesome. You guys mind if I plug the school and the information? Yeah, yeah everything, no, anything, whatever, website, great, Instagram, great. So Twitter. It's NorthFloridaSurvival.com. Uh, they can find us on Facebook at North Florida Survival, and uh, they can call the, the number anytime at 352-502-5355. Uh, but they can find pretty much all the information they need on the NorthFloridaSurvival.com website. And what they can't find there, they're, they're welcome to hit the Contact Us button and just reach out to us anytime. Yeah, and, and we'll put a link in the uh, in all the, the, the show. In the show blurb yeah, on, yeah. Uh, on the uh, uh, podcast uh, outlets. Awesome. I appreciate you guys. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Y'all have a great one. You Bye too. Here. Take care.